Hello everyone, you are listening to Black Adoptees Identities. I am your host, Christelle Pellicure, and I am a coach and a multidisciplinary creative. Please join me to explore what identity means for adult adoptees and how they form their identity for their own adoption journey. In this podcast, you will hear a variety of views from adult adoptees about their own experience of adoption and how adoption has impacted them and what lessons they have learned along the way. Please note that the guests have been courageous in sharing their stories and some of the content and subject matters can be emotionally challenging and distressing for some individuals. Please use your own judgment whether to continue to listen or not and do look after yourself. And if you are affected by some of the issues discussed, please seek appropriate support and help. In this episode, I am in conversation with Lanise Antoine Shelley, an Haitian-born interracial adoptee. Lanise shared her experience of coming out of the fog and the impact of adoption on her identity. We discussed grief, adopters' narrative about adoption, and impact of suppressing emotions for a long time. Lanise also talked about her podcast, When They Were Young, Amplifying Voices of Adoptees, her creative work and her inner work. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Black Adoptees Identities. I am Crystal Pellicure, your host. I am today joined by Lanise Antoine Shelley. Uh, and Lanise is a Haitian born interracial adoptee. She's an actress, director, playwright and host of the podcast When They Were Young, Amplifying Voices of Adoptees. She's an adoptee advocate and activator. Lanise, mm-hmm. welcome. Hi, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I do feel welcomed. Oh, mm-hmm. thank you so much. I mean, it's really exciting because I've read about you on your social media and I was very excited to see the amount of things you do in the arts because some of my background is in the arts as well. Uh, so I'm always really excited to have created. Oh, really? What do you do? Well, so I work in fashion for 10 years, but I also do short film mm-hmm. uh, and I did theater. So I introduced my story about adoption on stage. Actually, the first time I talked about my story was for theater. So I'm quite excited to hear that you also do work in theater. <laughs> yes. How exciting. I love fashion. I was into fashion when I was in New York, right after grad school, I worked at Burberry and Bagli Mishka briefly. Oh, wow. Amazing. Yeah. Well, we've got a lot to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> but let's start with your adoption journey. Tell us about where you, you were adopted from and to where. Okay. Well, I was born in Saint Michel, Haiti. And at the age of two, I was put in an orphanage in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. And at the time, the orphanage was used as a somewhat daycare and and temporary solution for childcare that would last a few hours or weeks, days, what have you. And my sister and I, she's not biological, but now my adoptive sister and I 
were uh, the first people to be adopted from the orphanage. And, and so we left with a single white woman to grow up in Northern California, Chico. Uh, and the whole community was white, as you can imagine. And, and that's basically it. So I was adopted at the age of four, born in Haiti, grew up in California. And um, I didn't really come out of the fog until about three or four years ago. It happened at the beginning of the pandemic. It, what's interesting is that a lot of adoptees don't quite understand, including myself, don't under, understand what coming out of the fog really is. It's so, it's so mystical, right? And we all think that we're where we've handled ourselves and, and have settled into a, a homeostasis setting with our adoption. But coming out of the fog is so much more than that. It's more than making peace with your adopters or, or enjoying your adoption. It's more than just that. It's, it's really excavating what happened as as a child, how are you dealing with it? What were the repercussions of that trauma of being adopted? And how are they showing up in everyday mundane or very or very important places in your life, such as relationships? And that's something that I started to do three or four years ago as I understood what coming out of the fog was for me. Right. That's amazing. I think it's the first time I really hear someone talking about coming out of the fog in such a depth because most of the time we don't actually think about all those different areas of our life that is impacted by coming out of the fog. Mm -hmm. So I really, I really like that because I think we don't always reflect enough about making peace of our, with ourselves, but also with our adopters uh, mm -hmm. during that process. I think sometimes people, when they come out of the fog, they still have issues with their adopters. They might have made peace with the, themselves, but not with the adopters. So I quite like your take from having that both sides, having that both reflection quite in depth. What's, what pushed you to come out of the fog? Was there a specific moment in your life or is that just a gradual thing that happened over the years? It was definitely gradual, but there was an inciting incident. It was the murder of George Floyd that erupted into a global understanding of racism here in the States and, and everywhere. That really allowed me to confront the fact that I could not discuss these things that were so prevalent and prominent in my life with my adopters. I had no one to run to and say, hey, when you were in the 60s, like what did you do during the civil rights movement? Sure, my mom was somewhat active in that, but honestly, I don't know. I don't even think she marched. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know girl. But the, the moral of the tale is I did not have a mentor growing up or someone who modeled how I should react to these things that were happening in my life and in the BIPOC collective as a whole. 
And so that launched my my interest in a panel series that went went um, on Facebook in 2020. And it garnered a lot of interest and view viewerships. And so I knew that I wanted to continue the conversation, but I knew I couldn't do it as a panel facilitator. So I launched my podcast when they were young, Amplifying Voices of Adoptees, and really dove into one-on-one -on -one conversations with adoptees who were, um, were excavating their own lives and their own story. Michelle Madrid, an adoptee and an author, really coined this beautiful way of coming out of the fog is finally observing your grief. And that's what I believe it is. And if that grief, which has laid dormant inside of us, because for many of us, we weren't given the space to grieve, right? Because we had to be grateful. We had to be we had to be docile, we had to be pleasable and agreeable and all of those things as a kid. And whether our adopters said it or not, that's what was instilled in us, in me, right? This sense of, I have to be a people pleaser in order to be loved. And my voice is secondary to the vision of what they think a family should be. So I was not given the space to grieve my family. And there's this misconception that adoptees are all orphans. That's wildly not true. Many adoptees still have living family, still have living parents and siblings and and they have lost that and they are not given the opportunity to grieve. And even in infancy, a child in the womb who is born, they feel the loss of their mother as soon as they're born and taken away from their mother. They do. And it's something that adopters don't like to hear and listen, listen to because it undermines their vision of saviorism and their vision of do-goodership. They believe their deeds are good no matter what. But imagine a world where there's a paradox where, yes, your intention is good, but there is harm intrinsically in this situation. What do you do then, right? You have to pivot. You have to pivot your way of thinking. You cannot just stick steadfast in this narrow view of saviorism of, oh, I was infertile or I wanted to do good and give back to the world, so I'm going to adopt or foster a child. You are negating the child's history when you approach it that way. When, when potential adopters approach me on Instagram and they ask me, how should I prepare for this, Lenise? Or what do you think about me adopting this little brown boy? And I, and I first ask them, why are you adopting? And they have thus far, this may change in the future. They have, their answer has been, because I want to give a child a home and love. And 
or or they say because i want to give a child a family and i say that's incorrect <laughs> because the child already has a family you are essentially trying to erase their past their history which is is embedded in their bone sinew and being you cannot erase it and love will not bandage any trauma that they experienced before they encountered you. So what do you do when that is the truth, which is 100% of the truth 100% of the time? You pivot your way of thinking into away from saviorism and towards let me protect and guard this child. Because when you are in the mode of protection, in the mode of guardianship, Love is there, grace is there, openness, availability, emotional flexibility is there. But for some reason, when we approach adoption with, oh, I'm going to love this child, do you think their birth parent did not love them? They did. And they thought that what they were doing was out of love. So who is loving more? So when we take love out of the situation, we really get to examine and put this child at the apex of the conversation and examine why am I doing this? Is it for me, is it egoic? Is it a sense of charitable hosp hospitality that I'm, that I'm endeavoring to do this? And so coming back to your question of the fog, when adoptees come out of the fog, quote unquote, they begin to ask these questions. They begin to see their adoption situation for what it is, which is a transaction. And from that information, they can choose what relationship they want with their family. Yeah, there's so much to, to take out from your answers. And yeah, I hope a lot of adoptive parents can hear you because there is so much truth in what you've just said. I really, I mean, I really resonate with the the grief that we've not been allowed to grieve, and I only understood that quite a long time after I was um I was adopted. I was an orphan. My mother passed away, but I didn't understand that I was actually grieving. Well, I didn't have the time to grieve at death actually <laughs> until mm. not that long ago, maybe five years ago, that I had to make that process. So. It was as soon as you arrive, you get on into this family and their own life, and that's it, like you say. Exactly. It's just go, go, go at their pace. It's yeah. not your pace. Exactly. And so for a lot of us, it's delayed response to this situation. And now as adults, that's when the anger comes out. That's when the grief comes out. That's when the resentment comes out because as a child, we had to suppress it for so long until we as adults begin to struggle with mental health. We begin to struggle with relationships. We begin to struggle with our careers because of a sense of inadequacy or imposter syndrome. It comes up, it veers its head in a variety of ways that are very insidious, but it will come for you whether it be in its full force and glory or silently in the night, this revelation of grief will come for you. 
Yes, absolutely. Tell us a bit more about your podcast. And uh, I know you say that it's uh, adoptees are the, the heroes of their own stories. Tell us a bit more about that. <laughs> well, the podcast, When They Were Young, Amplifying Voices of Adoptees, is a conversation starter. Because in the first season, I wanted to really isolate the challenge of talking about race in these households, in these homes, because I didn't grow up talking about race. All I knew was that my mom was a tolerant, liberal-minded person, but she didn't know how to how to create an environment for which I could freely talk about the things that happened to me. Like when I was, I don't know how old I was, I think probably 11, I was waiting for her to pick me up from the dentist office and some random person called me the N-word. And I never told her because we just hadn't established that rapport we hadn't established what what language around ra- racial inequities and injustice looked like and and uh, so therefore i had no idea so the very first season was focused on how do we have these challenging sticky conversations with adoptees of color right because the great majority of adopted people are of color And they're put into, more often than not, predominantly white communities. And they are asked to fend for themselves. And these well-meaning adopters are oblivious, less so now, but for a long time they were oblivious to how harmful that is to a BIPOC person to have to deal with constant micromanagement when people are pointing out on the playground how dark your skin is, how wide your nose is, why are your palms white and the backs of your hands dark? These sort of things get into little girls' and boys' minds growing up and and instill a deep insecurity. So there's a barrage of microaggressions that adoptees have to manage on their own. And so the first season helps the parents and the adoptees just create that conversation. The second season, we go into relationships. I have a lot of siblings coming on the podcast and they talk about their relationships, some of whom had been separated by adoption and reunited later on in life. And then conversations with husbands and wives because a lot of adoptees don't even talk to their spouses about about their adoption. They don't know, again, how to approach the topic. And then I also imbue a lot of the episodes, especially my solo episodes with wellness and, and how can we really heal holistically because there is trauma there what do we do and how can we manage the sense of aloneness, depression that might come up, the sense of being a misfit, all of these things that I know I've struggled with and continue to manage myself even in my adult life. 
that adoptees coming up into this education um, just need more tools. And so I present tools to communicate. I present opportunities to find deeper holistic wellness. And I also create a platform where adoptees are the heroes of their stories, because quite often the adopters are considered the heroes. In a lot of dominant narratives, the adopters are considered the savior. And I wanted to shift that. No, we are now taking back the narrative and we are the heroes of our own stories and we can dictate what we want to say, when we want to say and how. And how did you go for that journey yourself? So how did you shift the narrative for your own adoption story? How did you become your, your own savior, your own hero in your own story? Well, it starts with setting your own boundaries and doing the inner work. And I'm still chipping away at it. Like, I have to save myself every day. <laughs> like, Lanise, don't do that. <laughs> Get away from there. But I hear we, that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a big onion to keep peeling and peeling. You know, um, well, and also doing inner child work. And really holding the four-year-old self who was adopted, who really didn't know how to manage being taken from my, my country of origin, told that I can never, never speak Creole again. You can't speak Creole. You'll speak English. This is now your mother. These are now your grandparents. This is now your sister. This is the food that you will eat. This is the bed that you will sleep in. This is the climate that you will endure. And no one asked me ever how I felt about it, if I was okay. No one ushered me into it gently. I just was plopped into it. And so I hold that little four-year-old girl and I mother her. I let her know that she is safe and how brave and strong she is and how, how amazing she's done in this world that can be very cruel. And, and so in doing inner child work, in, in reparenting myself, right? Imagining my ideal parents, who they are and what they look like, how they would have parented me. Not to say that my mom didn't do a good job. She, I had a pretty uneventful, serene, childhood, relatively speaking. But there were a lot of missteps still. There were a lot of missteps that I'm catching up to because there are a lot of places in my childhood that I blacked out. And that's a trauma response. So I am now just being gentle with myself. Each day, being able to read books that are nourishing I'm reading The Power of Now right now. And it's, and ironically, it's taken me five years to read it. I had it on my shelf. <laughs> and I was just like, I'll get to it. I'll get to that. You know, The Power of Now was my biggest procrastination when it comes to reading books. But now that I'm finally in it, it's amazing. It's it's blowing my mind because it it really helps you to to understand the imperative 
of not holding on to the past and not reaching too far into the future, but just being present with where you are now and letting that be okay. And I think for adoptees, that's one of the many messages I like to impart to adoptees is that where you are is exactly right. And that's not because of your adoption. I'm talking about internally, because if you are afraid, if you are upset, resentful, angry, full of grief, full of sorrow, lamenting, that is okay. And it's imperative that we validate each other's feelings and validate our own feelings. Because as I said earlier, so much of our feelings were suppressed because they were not validated. So it's essential that us as healing adults say, I hear you to yourself. I hear you. You are upset. And that is okay. That's such an amazing advice. And I mean, I've done a lot of work around self-compassion. That Mm. has been one of the tools I've used to to grow myself into who I am today. And yeah, we we spend our life to accommodate everybody else around us and being kind to everybody else, but we are never kind with ourselves. And that is so much to our own detriment. And it's so hard to get out of that cycle. So yeah, definitely that self-love and self-compassion and being kind to ourselves is really important. And yeah, we are where we are supposed to be. It's yeah. everything happening in divine timing and we are where we're supposed to be right yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to say that's not to step into the narrative of our adoption was God's plan because I think that that's toxic. Like, it's not that, it's just simply where you are internally, emotionally is right. When I I had a a mental health crisis this past um, April, in the sense of like, a lot of things were happening in my life, and I needed that emotional support. And I knew that I needed a therapist, and I was able to find a Black female adoptee therapist, which was like a unicorn, even though there's more and more adoptee therapists that are out there and available. And I really encourage adoptees to seek adoptee therapists. But the first thing she said to me as I was like sobbing and keening on the phone to her for the consultation, she said, Lenise, I believe you. I have spoken to over a hundred adoptees and they all say the same thing. They all think they're crazy. And I'm here to tell you, you are not. And I believe you. And that was just, I think that's the biggest gift I was given this year is someone validating who I am as an adoptee because I spent decades being gaslit. (laughs) Wow. I... I can't even imagine you going through that because when I see, when I looked at your work, I was like, I was so amazed. <laughs> I was like, oh my <laughs> goodness, she's doing so well. And mm-hmm. hearing you to say that you still have moments of struggle and wow. I mean, I want to hear about your work in the theater and uh, the heart world. Tell us about what do you do in the heart? <laughs> well... I am a multi-passionate artist. 
I direct on stage and I act on TV, film and stage. I actually just turned down another stage project an hour or two ago because I want to act less on stage and just focus on directing and TV and film. And so I have all of my degrees are in theater, in acting, directing and playwriting. And um, it's just been my life for the past uh, a long time. I'm not going to say it because it's going to age me. <laughs> but uh, it's been my life, like just creating, being a visual artist. I used to be a dancer. I used to be an African dancer. And that was soul nourishing in a lot of respects because that's when I started to hang out with all of these Black people that encouraged me to be Afrocentric and instilled in me that I was beautiful. Because growing up, I didn't think I was beautiful. I didn't think I was smart, which was so weird. Like, even now, I, I look back and I'm just like, that poor little girl, you know? I was just so insecure. And I went home last year, back to Chico, and I looked at my yearbooks and so many of my friends that had written in my yearbook said, oh, you're so pretty and you're so smart. And I asked my mom, did I get get good grades? And she, and she said, yes, yeah, of course, Lenny's, you got really good grades. And, and, and to this day, I'm like, really? <laughs> you know, you, it's, it's working through that, that feeling, that little kind of grain of sand that's like in your sock, right, of inadequacy. So no matter what shoes you wear, you could be in, in some, um, some Gucci shoes, right, and you're still feeling that grain of salt of, or, or sand of inadequacy. And that's inner work that I have to continue to do. And um, I think many people who've accomplished a lot in life still have that grain that rubs against their heel every now and again that they, and I think to some respects, it's, it's good to have that because it keeps you grounded and humbled and, and reminds you uh, to be less egoic in your pursuits. But there are times when I wish I could just like put your big panties on, Lenise. Like, just do it. Just get it done. You know what I mean? Like, what are you whimpering about? But so it's just finding that balance for myself and and making sure that when the time asks for it, I can show up with conviction, with clarity and confidence. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the growth is taking all our life I think I don't think you ever stopped learning and growing as a person and I think that's what makes it difficult I think earlier on my journey of of healing I was doing the work then I would stop because mm -hmm. I thought I've done it <laughs> but then in the last couple of years I realized it's it's an everyday act that you have to do and learn everything that is happening to you is a lesson so it is a lot everyday commitment, really. Yes, I agree completely. It is. It's an everyday choice to show up for yourself and 
you know, some days are better than others. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, it's it's I went back to to my parents' house over the weekend and you know, observing all the dynamics of my family and I was like a lot of the things they're doing they're still in the same process of, you know, things 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And I realized I've already shifted so far away from that way of living. And I, and I said, I realized they never taught me the things that I really needed in life. You know, even schools, it's, you know, you have to learn all those things about yourself, those inner work and the inner child and compassion. There was none of those uh, growing up. And I, I wish, you know, we we had all this learning early on because that would have saved us you know moving into this world yes. and i i realized that also becoming a mother because i took all my trauma and transferred it to her unfortunately um, wow. now i'm learning <laughs> i'm learning and she's learning that you know i didn't know any better but again like you said things happen it's on your it's on timing and i i was due to do this work later on in life than in my 20s so yeah, it is. It's still everyday learning. Yeah. That's incredible, though, that you were able to catch that, that, to understand that you were transferring generational trauma onto your child. Like, I've never heard a parent admit that before. And that takes so much courage. I love that you mentioned that. I love that you acknowledge and and see that in yourself so you were able to stop it and you pivoted you took another path and that takes so much fortitude to do yeah and i think i was lucky because of the relationship i have with my daughter because she was able to tell me the things that i wasn't able to tell my parents my my oh. child was able to tell me where she was hurt and where i wasn't doing the right thing and i am so grateful for that because I didn't have the courage to tell my parents they were not doing the right thing. So I think that's, you know, it was really hard to take because, you know, as a, as a parent, you think you're doing the right thing uh, mm -hmm. and having to accept actually, yes, you are being hurt by some of my actions and I'm going to try to do better. So I think for me, that's really helped, you know, having my daughter is kind of an incentive to I have to do the inner work. I have to, it's hard but she's relying mm -hmm. on me. Whatever I am doing is going to impact our lives. So I think that helped in a way to find that courage, that inner strength to, to keep doing the work. That's an excellent point. The work that you're doing on your inner life and self will inevitably affect your daughter. And that's true for us all. Like the work that I'm doing is permeating into all of my relationships. And, and it comes back to me tenfold because those relationships become richer because of that work. Yeah. And we don't actually realize how much the, the work we do impact all the people around us. Because mm -hmm. I've also seen with my adoptive parents that me doing all these works have actually also shifted some of the, the way they behave. You know, they... They are much softer in their approach of life now. And the things that used to be so critical of me back in the day, they're not so much anymore. Uh, and that's also having to recognize that those oh, actually shifted because for a long time I was angry with them that 
they are so this way. <laughs> but actually seeing that I've done the work, then I kind of realize, okay, they are the way they are because they didn't know any better either in some mm. extent, not forgive them for everything that they couldn't bring along in my my own education, but I can see some shift in that journey as well. And I guess it's yeah. part of that coming out the fog of, you know, seeing your story in a different light. Um, that's how yes. move move along. Finally observing your grief and however that comes up for you. And I just wanted to touch on what you said a little earlier about how you weren't taught all of these things and you weren't able to go to your parents. And that kind of language, when I hear that from an adoptee, breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. And that's my story as well. And it isn't because these parents are cruel, malicious, mean necessarily. It's because they lacked the tools. And it's because their mentality was so locked in this dominant narrative of their, whatever they did was good, that they could not see beyond the forest, beyond these trees to see the forest, which was, I am being hurt. <laughs> I'm being hurt because I'm in an all white community. I'm being hurt because you're not listening to my, my physical or emotional cues. I'm being hurt because I lost my whole family, and now I have to assimilate to yours. Um, so I, I just wanted to touch on that because it was so important that you mentioned that, and I feel for you that that happened, and I, I'm sorry. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I'm sorry for you too because it's, yeah, it's not, I do not wish on anybody to have all this erasure in their life. And you mentioned earlier about your language. Do you now speak Creole? Did you manage to learn it? So, No, I hmm. haven't relearned it. I I was thinking about maybe someday going back to Haiti, but now that's not even an option because of all of the social unrest that's happening in Haiti right now. A lot of people can't visit uh, even for recreation. So there are a lot of Haitians here and some of whom have offered to teach me Creole, but I need to be immersed in it. Someday I will, you know, possibly employ somebody to, to learn. We'll see. But, but I've come to a place of peace and understanding that it does not I do not forfeit my Haitianness if I don't know Creole because I run into Haitians. I don't know if this happens to you. You seem to be like multilingual. Are you multilingual? No, that's you know really French? <laughs> French and English. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Just in French and English? Yeah. What do they speak in Madagascar? Malagasy, but I, I was like you as soon as I was, well, as soon as I was put in the orphanage, I was sent to, to study French. And when yeah. I arrived in France, I no, I had nobody to speak my own language. And actually, I think mentally the trauma, I blocked everything in my own head. So I wasn't able to, to speak the language very quickly. So I've not really spoken the language. I went back in 2010 to Madagascar, but I wasn't speaking the language anymore. And everybody, it's a, it's a North French colony, so they speak French there anyway as the okay. administrative language so you can get by there without 
the Malagasy, but you know, those people don't speak French as well. Have you had anyone question your Madagascar? And is that did I say that correctly? Yeah, Malagasy. It's a language. Madagascar. Uh, Malagasy. Mad- Mad- people from Madagascar, though, like, what do they identify as? Like, Malagasy. Malagasy. Really? Madagascar. Yeah. But okay. it, that's the interesting thing because in all the media say Madagascan. You know, every time okay. I every time yes. I see vanilla from Madagascar, you all say always say Madagascan vanilla. It's I think I don't know where it comes from, but yeah, in our own country we say Malagasy. Okay, Madagascar. Oh, I love that. Thank you for that. <laughs> Do you have anyone from who's Madagascar who question your your authenticity? I don't know that many people in in Europe. In I know in France now there's quite a few of them, but I've not lived in France for a while. In I know in the UK so there is hardly any Madagascar. So I've not had that. But when I went back to Madagascar, I had. You know, everybody assume I was Malagasy yeah. and speak the language. So that's when I mm-hmm. faced it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think like you, I don't feel like the need. I did miss it when I was a child because I felt like that was my real connection to uh, Madagascar. I also was adopted. I was 10. So I was speaking mm-hmm. the language for quite a long time. So when I had to stop learning or speaking it, that's I did feel that there was a gap in me. There was a, this void. But now, so many years have passed, I don't feel like the need to reconnect with the language. Although at times I do feel like it would be nice to speak it. But I don't know if I will ever learn it. I I have some friends from Madagascar that I've connected now, but I don't, yeah, it's... It's one of those things that you have to be very committed and be immersed in it to be able to to fully grasp the language. So I don't know if I will get there. We'll see. Yeah, I feel the same. And so a few times I've met Haitians and then they rattle off in Creole and I'm like, wait, wait, wait. You know, I was born there, but I no longer speak Creole. And another layer of just social trauma that adoptees have to navigate is outing themselves, right? Because people may assume things when they see us with our parents who are white and look vastly different from us. And then people may assume things when we tell them we're from a certain country and then they start speaking in the native language and we say no. And so we have to correct them. Oh, I, I'm adopted or whatever it may be, which is none of their business. And, and TMI, you know, for most people, but we as adoptees, we have our trauma on our sleeves. And there's a lot of shame. I carried a lot of shame as a kid about that, of having to have my deepest wound available for public consumption. People can talk about it. My mom would speak freely about it because she didn't understand the boundaries. My um, my sister felt differently about the adoption situation, so she wasn't available to converse with about what it is that I was going through. And so, so yeah, it's it's a tricky thing, and a lot of adopters more are thinking along the lines of what is this doing to this child taking away their native language 
again, even if they're an infant, they had spent nine months listening to their mother through the womb, speaking in a certain language, smelling a certain way, all of these things that they have have become accustomed to. And then that's torn away from them. So, so yeah, I give myself grace as to whatever path I end up taking, it doesn't forfeit my Haitianness, and no one can define that but me. Mm-hmm. I mean, the other thing I, I keep having to face is for me from being from Madagascar is every time I mention that word is some people don't even know that it's a real country. It's, you know, because I've seen the cartoon and all they think about is the cartoon. You know, oh. having to explain <laughs> it is a real <laughs> place. It's, it's yes, crazy. I would love to go. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I would it's a love to place. go. Yeah, it is a beautiful yeah. place. So. You know, I always ask, I, I really enjoyed this conversation and I could be here for a long time, but I don't want to <laughs> keep it too long. Uh, but I always ask my guest at the end of the, the discussion, if you have to give uh, an advice to your younger self or to a young adoptee, and I'm sure you have given many over the years, uh, mm-hmm. what's, what would that advice be? I would tell my younger self to say no more. That's a beautiful advice. Yes, because when I speak to my mom about how I was as a kid, I was very, I was such a good kid. They were like, oh, she's well adjusted. You know, I hate it when (laughs) parents say that because you don't, you don't know. Um, (laughs) Like all you know is what your child is showing you. Have you asked, you know, and I was very committed to not rocking the boat. And I think that there were certain situations where I could have just said no. And even now as an adult, one of the biggest gifts that I give myself is saying no. And you can say it politely, you can say it with tact. I'm unavailable for that. If that doesn't work for me, I would prefer us do this instead. And that allows you to feel free. Because one of my greatest wounds was my needs did not matter. And that was bred out of saying yes in situations where I felt uncomfortable, unsafe, unprotected. And had I said no, I would not as an adult be navigating the wound of my needs not mattering. Yeah, and that's linked to what you mentioned earlier about boundaries, you know, if you are able to stay no more often, then you can set on boundaries a lot more bigger. Yeah. yeah, and linked to us being people pleaser, not trying to make other people uncomfortable by saying no. Uh, yeah. That's part of it. And I think a lot of adopted that struggle with that. Mm-hmm. So Forfeiting that, yeah. our own comfort. And I hear it from many adult adoptees who still to this day are uncertain about the depth of the love from their adopters and their adopters are oblivious of that. They are there living their full lives, not questioning the the loyalty or the love of their adoptees because of the deed that they did. 
but the adoptee is constantly walking on eggshells, navigating this relationship where the power dynamic says that their needs are secondary to the people who adopted them. And so really examining that for yourself, for the adoptive parent, whoever is listening, examining the power dynamic of of the adoptee, the adoptive parent, the agency, and the birth parent. And for some reason, the birth parents are always on the bottom because there's this connotation that they are bad people. They're not bad people. There are no bad people in this scenario. They're people who were put in a dire situation where they had to, for whatever reason, relinquish their child. And that, and whoever ended up taking the child does not inherently make them good because we've heard of many adoptees being murdered, abused, neglected, molested by adopters and foster parents. So understanding that there is no better or good in this scenario, there is only one intent, and that is what does the child need for protection, safety, and belonging? Once you focus on that, then you have more options. Yes, absolutely. It's always about the child need, not anybody else around, really. And that's just not what is put forward in most adoption, unfortunately. That's a sad truth. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much, Lenise. That has been amazing. And thank you for your wisdom, your lightness and your, you know, your (laughs) shining. I mean, our audience doesn't see you, but you are full of shine. I can see the light (laughs) in you. So thank you for bringing that light to to this uh, episode today. I really appreciate you. Thank you so much. You're kind. Thank you for having me. It was wonderful to meet you. Thank you. This is Christelle Pellecuer, and you have been listening to Black Adoptees Identities, where Black adult adoptees share their stories. Please do share and subscribe to our podcast, and do stay connected with us by following us on Instagram at Black Adoptees Identities. Thank you for listening to this week's episode, and until next time, goodbye.